Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a, pod, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman, see I can say that right. I'm Laura Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, here today with my colleague Khaled El-Gindi of the Middle East Institute. Today is September 22nd, 2021, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this conversation with Tarek Kinishawa. Over to you, Khaled. Tarek is a graduate research fellow with me at the Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute, uh, where uh, he'll be doing a fellowship for the coming academic year, um, thanks to uh, a grant from the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Um, He's also a master's in international affairs uh, candidate at Columbia University, where he's studying conflict resolution, international security, and journalism. During his time as a graduate student, um, Tarek has consulted for the New York Times where he researched far-right extremism and threats posed to journalists, uh, so quite timely. Before that, Tarek worked as a security cons- uh, at a security consulting firm based in New York City where he covered conflict developments across the Middle East and North Africa. You can and should follow Tarek on Twitter at T-K-S-S-H-A-W-A, that's T-K-S-S-H-A-W-A on Twitter. Terrific. Um, So welcome, Todd. We're so happy to have you. Um, Can you, just as a starting point, can you introduce yourself briefly, briefly to the audience with a little more personal data than what was in that bio paragraph? Where are you from? Where's your family from? Um, what are you most interested and passionate about when it comes to uh, research and policy fields? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the introduction, Mara and Khaled. Um, hello, everybody. I'm, I'm Tarek Kanishawa. I'm, as, as Khaled mentioned, I'm currently a second year uh, master's in international affairs candidate at Columbia SIBA. And I'm studying, um, as, as Khaled said, the intersection of, of security, conflict resolution, and then my specific interest is, is journalism. Um, I was, I was born in New York. Uh, my father's Palestinian, my mom's American, um, kind of starting from ops from, from that very different kind of backgrounds. Um, and then I spent, I spent most of my life growing up in the Middle East, but there was a lot of back and forth between the Middle East and New York. Um, so at the end of the day, New York has kind of felt like home to me, but I think that, that, um, childhood kind of informed my interest in um, my overarching interest in international relations, politics, um, and then over time, I became more and more interested in storytelling and how um, the way we tell stories, um, um, you know, kind of molds our political perspectives and in a larger extent molds um, foreign policy itself. Um, so I think that's kind of what um, pushed me down this uh, path, so to say, and um, I'm Still excited to see where it ends up. Um, I've got one more year of graduate school left and then it's kind of a return to the real world. Great. Um, so Tarek, recently you wrote an article that was published in 972 Magazine entitled, Palestinian Americans are turning the tide of US policy. Uh, so for folks who haven't seen that, uh, we'll include a link here uh, uh, in the text uh, that accompanies this podcast. Um, so, I mean, this piece is, uh, is interesting because it's also the subject of your research at MEI for this coming, uh, for your graduate fellowship. So, 
Um, there's lots of reasons to, to sort of probe at it. And, and it's especially timely, I think, just given recent events. Um, so we have a lot to ask you about, but let me start with, uh, with this. So you write specifically that Palestinian Americans are, quote, indelibly shifting the narrative around Palestinian liberation, and that this was clear uh, during uh, what you describe as the widespread mobilization of Palestinians and their supporters. So can you talk a little bit about this mobilization, um, what it looked like and what impacts uh, it had? Um, and also, um, how has this recent mobilization sort of play out, played out recently in the context of uh, the Gaza and Jerusalem crisis that we saw uh, this past May? Sure. Especially so in, sorry, sorry, especially in comparison to previous conflicts that we saw, for example, the, the 2014 Gaza war. What was different this time around versus, uh, versus last time? Yeah, so to, to give some background on um, kind of my current research, research focus, um, I'm, I'm really looking at, you know, the shifting narrative around Palestine and the Palestinian struggle in the context of public opinion in general, but mainly in the U.S. because of my um, Palestinian American background and focus, um, and then going further, how um, it may or may not translate into actual changes in U.S. foreign policy. Um, so kind of uh, along that vein, part of what I want to determine is whether there's a general threshold that these types of issues must um, actually cross um, in order to actually impact U.S. Uh, foreign policy decisions. Um, so this summer, um, while I've yet to do um, actual you know, survey analysis and, I, and while I hope to do more actual in-depth analysis of this, um, I think there's definitely a, a noticeable shift um, in the narrative around Palestine and the Palestinian struggle. And um, I think pretty much it can be kind of boiled down to um, several factors, one of them being the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement um, last summer, which really I think galvanized um, you know, the social justice movement in the US and, and, and kind of opened up the conversation for, for some of these issues around systemic uh, racism, police brutality, and um, uh, white supremacy, um, you know, these, these issues. And I, I think a lot of them um, intersect and can be applied to the conversation on Palestine. Um, so I think that was, you know, a fundamental part of, of making the conversation that we had this summer about what happened in May and, and June in, um, in Sheikh Jarrah and, and Gaza, that's, that's really some of the main factors that made it, made it possible. But as you mentioned, um, I think um, a, a more long-term contributing factor to this shift has been um, emerging young Palestinian American um, activists who have um, grown up with their parents' um, stories, grown up with a very deep connection to Palestine and, and, and um, a, a, a strong desire to get involved and a strong desire to um, place themselves in positions of influence and actually influence US policy. Um, so while it's difficult to actually um, record um, kind of this, this metric change between this summer and 2014 and for example, 20, 2008, just because it's, you know, it's a long process of analyzing data on Twitter, um, you know, hashtags, quotes, et cetera. I think there's been a noticeable shift in, in the online discourse in the progressive 
um, community and not just the progressive community as well as moderates and and you know people across the spectrum in which not only are people actually talking about Palestine, Israel, and, and, and what's happening, for example, in Gaza, people are actually actually sympathizing more with, with Palestinians and tying their struggle to what's going on in many cases in the US. And, and I think that's, that's the main thing that I noticed um, has shifted is just the public discourse, is, is the number of people speaking out, out for Palestine and, and um, and not only on, on social media and the halls of Congress, when we have representatives like, like Ilhan Omar and, and, and Rashida Talaib and, and the, the growing list of, of uh, progressive um, representatives who are actually championing the Palestinian cause in Congress. And I think that's another example of, of just the tangibility of this, of this shift. Thanks, Donna. And I know that we want to get back to you a little bit more on the what's sort of what's behind the shift in the in the narrative or in the grassroots. I'd like to go back to your piece again. I'm going to read you part of the piece. You said that the events of the past summer, quote, reminded the diaspora of our integral function in the increasingly diverse global movement for Palestinian liberation. More importantly, Palestinians have proven not only that we are less fragmented than we had feared, but there we, we are indelibly shifting in that language, the narrative around our struggle for liberation. So I want you to talk a little bit more about this impact. So how has the narrative changed um, from what you've seen? Or again, I know you want to do broader research, but just impressionistically, how has that narrative changed? What is shifting specifically about it and, and with whom? Um, who's being impacted by this engagement? And, and how, if you can talk a little more, how you see this playing out in progressive politics itself. So I think the, I think the main shift is um, formalizing in, in people's um, approach to viewing Israel as um, a stable ally of the United States that shares, um, that shares values and political ideologies um, with the United States. And I think um, what has changed is that more, um, more people are drawing attention to um, you know, the realities of occupation, the realities of the war crimes that Israel commits in Gaza, the realities of the ethnic cleansing that are ongoing in, um, across, you know, across the Palestinian territories, but, but especially in May and in Sheikh Jarrah and, and that are still ongoing. Um, and I think this is obviously, um, you know, more effective when it comes to um, people on the left, um, the Democratic Party, um, because I don't want to jump the gun here because in the US, I mean, the US is still a very pro-Israel oriented um, voting base and a very pro-Israel oriented um, leadership. But I mean, in, in, in recent polls, I mean, there's there's been a shift on the left and, and in general, um, I think it was 48% of, of Democrats sympathize more with, with Palestinians compared to 33% with Israel. Um, and, and one of the biggest shifts in, in years. And then further data points point to growing generational divides with um, you know, younger Americans substantially more sympathetic to Palestinians. And then um, this is kind of expected, I guess, with, with the Democratic Party, which has become, has, has started incorporating more and more progressive um, you know, issues into its, into its um, general platform. Um, but I think I think a more more surprising shift is actually the the changes in, in public opinion among um, evangelicals, which 
have been described as, as Israel's most reliable um, support base in the US. And um, Shibu Tilhami um, actually recently conducted a study, he's, uh, I believe, at the University of Maryland, um, where I think 40% of um, younger evangelicals, in, and this was from 2015, I believe, wanted the US to lean more towards Israel over the, 20, uh, over the Palestinians, um, while only 21% shared that same um, sentiment in 2018. So that's, that's a notable shift in, in evangelicals who, um, you know, have served as, as a very staunch supporter of Israel. Um, so I think not only with, with regards to, you know, the U.S. left and, and the Democrats, um, I think that this shift is, is kind of happening across the board um, as people are able to uh, more clearly, um, you know, see the Palestinian narrative and understand the, the Palestinian perspective and then in turn empathize with uh, Palestinians themselves. So, so really what we're talking about is a, is a broader, what it sounds like is we're talking about a broader shift in public opinion in general, um, or is it sort of concentrated in specific, uh, with specific constituencies, you know, the young women, people of color, uh, people I self-identify as, as liberal, um, or is there a broader shift uh, because you know, the, the, the example you gave of, of public opinion among evangelicals, that's, I think, pretty surprising. Um, I think a lot of people would be, uh, would find that kind of unexpected. Um, so is there a broader shift? And, and I want to, I want to get at, like, what is your take on what is fueling um, this, this shift? Is it, um, is the narrative shifting uh, because the message and the messenger is changing, or is it because of the receptivity of those receiving the message um, has has changed, or some you know some combination? Um, uh, and um, you know, is this just the function of people learning more about about Palestine, or is there something deeper, maybe more ideological, going on? Um, in sort of American culture. I just add, I mean, also learning more about what's happening with Israel, the sort of, is it the people now, it's the de-exceptionalization of Israel as there's freer flow of information. Is that, is that a, sort of a, a, a complementary factor maybe? Yeah, so. yeah, and if I could just tack on to that too, um, uh, sorry to bombard you. It'd be a very big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a big question because I think this is really what, what ultimately people want to know is where is this coming from? Because that helps us understand where this might be headed. Um, are there particular groups, you know, in terms of the audience and the message and the messenger, are there particular groups or movements that you see as um, spearheading this effort or this shift? Yeah, so, okay, so it's, I, I, I definitely believe it's, it's, you know, kind of like a huge mix of, of kind of like all these different factors um, coming together to kind of like push this change. Uh, but to address the first uh, question, I definitely believe that this, sh this shifting perspective on Israel is definitely very much concentrated. Um, it's, it's definitely more concentrated among, among um, progressives, Democrats, but as the, as the data says, it is also shifting the national conversation as well. So 
while it while it is making more headway amongst um, uh, amongst Democrats and, and progressives, the rest of the U.S. population is kind of following suit. Um, and I guess you know some people could tie this to uh, general um, political trends and, and and how you know politics slowly ebbs and flows over time between you know shifting left and as as kind of as as uh, for example Bernie Sanders presidency. Um, presidential election campaign kind of like showed it's it's these these opinions are getting more and more popular amongst the general uh, voting population. So yes, while while it is definitely concentrated um, within the Democratic and Progressive Party, it is also um, showing signs of shifting the, the general population. Um, and then to address the next question, um, sorry, you're gonna have to remind me which was next in this <laughs> this order. Um, uh, well, my, my piece of it was, uh, are there particular groups or movements that you see as kind of spearheading this shift? And, and just to sort of give you a little bit more context, what I find really remarkable um, about, this, about this moment is if one were to do a cost analysis, of, you know, dollar for dollar spent on pro-Israel advocacy versus pro-Palestine advocacy, um, I mean, the gap is enormous, right? I mean, there are institutions, we all know them by name, um, that are dedicated, you know, to, to preserving and expanding the U.S.-Israel relationship and deepening that exceptionalism that Lara talked about. If you look at the infrastructure of Palestine advocacy, it's far, far smaller. Um, and I'm, you know, I can't help but wonder if, if they're sort of punching a way above their weight, right? I mean, the, 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 you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of changing the, the politics and the policy, but um, there is that noticeable shift. So I'm just curious, are there particular groups that you think um, are more responsible for, for driving that, that change? Absolutely. So I think, yeah, as you said, I, I do agree that, that pro-Palestine groups in the U.S. especially have been punching above their weight, uh, especially in regards to just, just looking at, you know, funding levels. Um, Pro-Israel lobbying groups like, like, for example, APAC spend at a much higher level than, than any similar comparison um, in regards to pro-Palestine groups. Not that there is really a, a similar comparison because there isn't- Or that, any combination of groups even. Combination of groups, yeah, because there isn't this, that same centralized um, uh, lobbying, uh, very well-funded and, and government-funded lobbying um, source. So the source of support for for from Palestinians has been by and large uh, grassroots efforts um, led by protest groups, led by um, you know, Palestinian American activists, led by individuals and led by you know, emerging groups like, like the Institute for Middle East Understanding, IMEU for example, or even um, you know, organizations like, um, for example, Let, Let's Talk Palestine has, has been very active on, on social media and, and has very, been very active in kind of, you know, developing this discourse um, and, and guiding it in the right direction. And then I also want to kind of draw attention to the work of um, organizations like Human Rights Watch, um, which, um, you know, kind of more recently have drawn more attention to the apartheid nature of, of um, of, of Israel. And I think it's important because of course, you know, Palestinians have been making that argument for years, but I think it, it really ties into um, our argument 
and and it really you know kind of gives the Palestinian movement fuel to and and, and kind of like a legal basis um, to work off of. Um, and I think that's been extremely important in um, you know contributing to this shift in narrative because it's given people a legal framework through which um, to actually view um, Israel's um, occupation and actually view Israel's treatment of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, et cetera. Thanks. I, I want to shift a little bit to the question of policy. So we're talking about public opinion and narrative, and we've talked a little bit, you mentioned Bernie Sanders campaign politics. We've seen you know, the emergence of a more vocal contingent in Congress that, that expresses concern for Palestinian rights. Um, where do you see the, the likelihood of this shifting, this, this delivering a change in policy? Because we haven't really seen that yet, right? Um, and to the extent that the Biden administration has differed from the Trump administration in many areas or claimed it's gonna roll back things that, the Biden, that Trump did on Israel-Palestine, I mean, the policies are, are, are pretty status quo. The discourse for folks who listen to confirmation hearing today for the new ambassador or last week for the assistant secretary, um, but you know, at the same time, we have yesterday's drama over Iron Dome. So, what what are your thoughts on on translating the, the prospects of seeing this translate to a shift in policy? So that's yeah. So that's that's the question that my I think my longer term research hopes to answer. And um, but but right off the bat, I I think the the question of when it's going to actually impact U.S. policy is is going to be a matter of years or decades. Um, I think that the changes we've been seeing in um, you know, public discourse, this narrative, this cultural hegemony that um, that has that has kind of been present for so long. These are these are very very gradual changes that that require decades and decades of of in a sense seeping into the public's understanding of of Palestine, of Palestinians, and the Palestinian struggle, and 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 the the, the you know this, the experiences that Palestinians go through. I think that in order for it to translate to policy, actually US policy is gonna take decades. Um, and I think, you know, something that's I've been thinking about recently to kind of, you know, compare it to is, is the, you know, the popularity of, of Medicare, Medicare for all in the US. I mean, you know, poll after poll has, has surveyed um, general, you know, population opinion on Medicare for all and has found that it, it is widely popular, even a majority in, in, in many cases and, and has increased over time. Yet the Democratic Party, despite the fact that that is even more pronounced within the Democratic Party and within the emerging progressive um, component of the Democratic Party, they have yet to kind of like incorporate that or even like a serious debate about that into their platform. Um, so I, to be honest, and, and perhaps this is a, a pessimistic um, approach to it, but I, I worry that you know there could be a, a, an even more substantial shift in public opinion around Palestine, to which a growing number of, of Americans, um, you know, call for you know conditioning U.S. aid to Israel, call for um, you know eventually you know supporting you know movements like BDS, um, but that that um, you know, reluctance to actually incorporate it into mainstream um, platforms slows that process down. But I mean, the other argument is that, as we saw yesterday um, with, with the progressive component of 
of Congress kind of, or of, of, of the Democrats um, pressuring them to remove that, um, the $1 billion um, additional um, funding for, for the Iron Dome system, that's, while it, while it is problematic for Democrats in the long run, um, you know, strategically, um, I think that does show that, okay, things on the ground are, you know, shifting when it comes to actual uh, policy change. But as I said before, I, I, I think it's, it's going to be decades before we see substantial changes that will actually have an impact on um, the occupation itself. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the most striking things about the whole Iron Dome drama over the past day or so um, is that there is a group, there is a, a group in Congress that is actually willing to take political risks and hits because they're being criticized across the board from the right and from the left and from the center. Um, you know, was this really a strategic move? Aren't they shooting themselves in the foot? This is going to pass anyway in a different form. Why are they falling on their sword? But what it really shows is that there is a there is a group that is prepared to pay a political price. And I don't recall a time when that was the case. Um, but uh, sort of shifting gears a little bit uh, to to look at the Palestinian side of this equation. Um, I want to ask you so in your 972 piece, the same piece that we've been talking about, you also write that the May crisis um, in Jerusalem and Gaza demonstrated that Palestinians are not as fragmented uh, as many of them and many others thought they were. So what exactly uh, do you mean by that? I mean, is this a new era of Palestinian unity or uh, what does it mean in, in, in practical terms? So I think that in May, um, in May and June, we saw kind of an unprecedented level of Palestinian unity within um, the West Bank, Gaza, the, the even, even surrounding countries like Jordan. Um, for example, when you know, thousands of people marched uh, towards the, um, the border with the West Bank from, uh, in Jordan, I think that is something we haven't seen in years. And then the um, repeated and connected uprisings in, um, you know, you know, towns and cities within, within Israel, um, I think that kind of showed in a way that hasn't been evident over the past, um, you know, several years that Israel's policy and, and Israel's ongoing policy, though very effective of, of divide and conquer has not, has not totally silenced a uh, collective Palestinian struggle. Um, but to say that it's, it's a turning point would be, I think jumping the gun a little bit just because of, you know, the, just the amount of obstacles Palestinians face in um, Palestine and Israel to collective action. And I think what the aftermath of May and June kind of showed in regards to um, the Palestinian authorities crackdown on, on public dissent, on, on um, peaceful protests, I think that 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 goes to show just how many obstacles the Palestinians within places like the West Bank and Gaza still have to have, um, you know, still face because, I mean, they're up against not only Israel, but they're up against their own leadership. Um, so there's this, there's definitely this dissonance between what I see as the Palestinian streets, the grassroots efforts and the Palestinian leadership. Um, so I think the, the bigger fragmentation now isn't necessarily between territory. It isn't necessarily between the West Bank and Gaza. It isn't necessarily between 
Palestine and the diaspora, I think the, the, the big um, gap in, in understanding is between um, the general grassroots Palestinian activists and their leadership. And I think that's gonna be the biggest hindrance for um, collective action um, in regards to kind of like formulating a new um, political approach and new, a, a new um, collective strategy. So you, you have perfectly anticipated the direction I wanted to go with this, which is, you know, so you've got this growing distrust of leadership, frustration with authoritarianism, corruption, incompetence, um, confidence is at an all time low. We saw polling, I think, today on this. And of course, the protests, which were sort of brutally repressed and, and the whole discourse around the murder of Nizar Manat. So assuming that you could actually see the shift in narrative that you're talking about relate to a shift in politics and maybe even in policy, how does this affect the actual interests of Palestinians absent a credible Palestinian leadership that can capitalize on it? I think that's, I mean, I think that's the question to ask, ask next. And, and it's something else I'm also hoping to kind of delve into a little bit further with my research is, is that, of course, you know, narrative can be a tool for liberation, but how can we advance it further than just, you know, debating, okay, is, is, is narrative shifting or isn't? Um, and I think the first issue it is to address is that fragmentation that I just discussed. Um, both the fragmentation within, you know, between Palestinians that has shown to be less of a serious issue, you know, after, after May, since we've, we've had such, um, you know, just in, in light of, of the territorial solidarity, um, but more in regards to, you know, our, our leadership. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's pretty widely known now that the Palestinian struggle is at a crossroads. Um, it's, it's becoming increasingly recognized that the two-state solution has, um, has failed and has, you know, been defunct for a long time now. And the one-state reality has become increasingly entrenched. And I think this, and, and this is what many people are saying, this is not something new at all. I mean, a lot of Palestinian activists, both in the US, in Palestine, um, are saying that this necessitates a, a paradigmatic shift in political strategy. Um, but the fragmentation and, and this disconnect between um, you know, grassroots activists and the leadership um, has postponed this debate and has, has forced us into this um, kind of dead end of, of, you know, pushing our diplomatic avenues towards, um, you know, this, this failed push for, for two states and, and ignoring the more important debate now that I feel is, is to explore alternatives. And, and I want to be clear that I'm not, um, I'm not arguing specifically for one or the other political endpoints. Um, I, I think there is a lot of disagreement still within amongst Palestinians about, you know, what level of, of um, or, or, or what specific political, um, you know, organization they would they would support. Um, but I think this debate needs to be held at a higher level, not just within you know the grassroots activists um, circles. And I think this 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 debate needs to be held at a higher diplomatic um, level in order for it to, to gain legitimacy. Picking up on that, on that very thought. So um, 
you know, you write in this piece about this new collective voice that is speaking out for Palestinian rights, this that is, you know, coalescing among Palestinians, both inside and outside of Palestine. Um, and that's, you know, that's very important, you know, mobilization um, and new platforms are, are critical. Uh, but I sort of keep coming back to this question of wither politics, you know, how can you, can you really bring about any real change without politics and specifically institutional politics? And so, as you know, um, this past, uh, you know, earlier this year, there were elections scheduled uh, for Palestinians. They were supposed to be uh, across the board for Palestinian legislative council, for the presidency, and even for the PLO's parliament, the, the PNC. Um, those were summarily canceled at the last minute by uh, President Abbas. One of the many reasons for his uh, very sharp decline in, in popularity. Um, uh, one thing that we've seen, though, is that young people, I think there was a lot of excitement around the idea of elections because Palestinians are starved for change and starved for participatory politics. Um, but I noticed uh, among younger people, there was a kind of, um, you know, by which I mean, like in their 20s and 30s. Uh, who were skeptical or at least ambivalent about the prospect of, of elections that maybe their elections, um, you know, might end up doing more harm than good or at least consolidating some of these negative trends. Um, and there's a whole movement actually, uh, I think it's called Al-Jil Al-Jadid, right? Um, that is sort of pushing against elections and in a different direction. So I'm just curious where you fall on the institutional politics or lack thereof uh, question uh, for, for Palestinians. Um, should they have elections? Uh, what should those elections be for? If not, what's the alternative to bringing about political change or reform? I think, so I think that's a great question. And it's, it's a question that I'm not sure I have um, you know, a, a full confident answer to because it's something that I'm still mulling over and that I want to be mulling over in the long term. I think before, you know, first, a, a big thing that I want to work on and, and that I think, you know, we should work on is trying to establish better bridges between the Palestinian diaspora and Palestinians in Palestine so that we can, you know, kind of merge these conversations so that it's not like, you know, we're having one conversation in the US about Palestinian politics and Palestinians in Palestine are having an entirely different conversation. And that often is the case. And, and while we do, you know, see eye to eye on, on, on many, many things strategically, um, I worry sometimes that there's, that there's a dissonance between um, diaspora political discourse and um, political discourse in Palestine. So that's first, that would be, you know, in order to answer that question, I think better bridges need to be built between these two segments of the Palestinian population so that we can have this, you know, political conversation together. And then to address your question about, um, I mean, so to address your question about, you know, the elections themselves is, what I worry is that, um, I, I mean, I personally would have, I think I would have welcomed elections. I would celebrate any opportunity to not have Abbas be 
continue as, as you know, the Palestinian representative. Um, but at the same time, I wonder if um, elections would just be kind of allowing the um, entrenchment of this um, inherently, oh, did you lose Keep going, Anyways, I'll come back. I, I worry that, that, that it would kind of cause the entrenchment of this um, kind of, you know, post-Oslo um, inherently flawed political order that is, that just allows for the creation of a Palestinian authority that is solely oriented towards making occupation easier for Israel. Um, so the conversation I think we need to be having isn't necessarily just about, um, are we gonna have elections or not? Um, and I think that's kind of tripped us up a lot because we've gotten into kind of like circular conversations about are we gonna have elections or is Abbas gonna um, cancel them, which, which eventually is inevitable. Um, I think the conversation should be is what do we want our leadership to look like? What do we want our political, uh, our long-term political objectives to be? And what kind of framework um, do we want to fit them into? Because at the end of the day, if, if elections were held, we would have a new president, right? But we would be in the same um, political situation. The occupation would be the same. Um, the, everything down to the areas that the PA has sovereignty, quote unquote, over would, would remain the same. Um, so I think the framework itself of a Palestinian authority needs to be debated. And I think the issue with this election discourse is that that question is being relegated to, you know, the ivory tower um, discussions. And I think that needs to be the conversation we're having, you know, on the ground rather than just amongst us. So I think as the last question, I want to circle back to something you talked about earlier, which was the sort of political moment we're in and how it interacts with the Palestinian cause, um, the global the global movement for rights. You know, the the those of us you know, the, the 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 movement for decolonization, for equity, not just equality but equity. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how this generation, in that sense at least, differs? And not just maybe not just on Israel Palestine, the sort of activism of this generation differs. And, and specifically when it comes to the Palestinians of younger Palestinians in the diaspora, how this relates to how one thinks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or what do you want to call it, and the Nakba itself, um, and, and, and what, what resolution means. So I think, I think to frame my answer, um, I wanna quickly just explain the importance of the international community in, um, in the Palestinian struggle. I think, um, unfortunately, Palestinians themselves do not hold um, significant hard leverage over their occupier. And, and in order to um, you know, end the occupation and in order to exert pressure on an occupying force, you're gonna need international support. And this was, this was what was seen in, in apartheid South Africa, um, so that while grassroots efforts led by Palestinians in Palestine will always be the spearhead, will always be the most important factor and, and must be um, you know, focused on and sustained, I think that cultivating international support in, in a very similar way that was um, done in South Africa is going to be you know, crucial to you know, pressuring and, and pressuring Israel to loosen its grip. But I think that, as you mentioned, I think 
you know, the, the, the changing conversation today, what that does is that enables this. And I think that what the, the issue is that, you know, 10 years ago, while Palestinians were more or less saying the same thing, um, more or less making the same arguments about apartheid, about war crimes, um, for example, in 2008 or 2014, um, I think today's political environment where people are more receptive and open to having this discourse around, around human rights, around equity, around, um, you know, applying these conditions, not only in the US, but a, to a general approach to, to humanity, I think that has been critical in allowing this, this conversation to continue. Um, and then what that means for, you know, the Palestinian struggle itself, and what that means for a solution um, to this, to this you know, for lack of better words, conflict or for this the solution to this this an end to this occupation is that I think I think solutions are going to take a very different um, form than just the you know the simple kind of straightforward you know you get this I get that independence um, I think I think a solution is going to have to be a lot more um, collective and it's and it's going to you know really involve a lot more creativity. Um, than has been, you know, put into it as of late. Um, yeah. Thank you. It's a good answer, Helen. Uh, yeah. Thanks, I'm thanks, sorry. Uh, before we before you do the outro, because we're going to do a little outro here, but um, Tara, I want to give you a chance to just explain or give the background of the painting behind you, because I suspect people who are watching this on video are going to be thinking, "That's gorgeous. What are we looking at?" So this painting is by my aunt, Leila Shawa. She's um, London-based um, and she does amazing paintings, um, not just paintings, sculptures, um, you know, everything under the sun. And she's, as you can see, beautiful. She has a very diverse style. A lot of her work um, kind of verges into kind of political um, and, and really tries to argue, argue a political point. Um, but I would definitely direct anyone who is interested to check out her work, um, Leila Showa, um, London. If you're in London, I think her work is at the British Museum. And Very cool. Other galleries. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so uh, as Laura indicated, we are out of time. Um, and so thank you so much, Tarek, for, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, I, for one, am very much looking forward to your, your research, and I'm sure many others um, will be on, uh, looking out for your, for your work in the coming weeks and months. Um, and thank you, Lara, for having me join this uh, terrific conversation. Thanks, Khaled, for joining me in this terrific conversation, and thanks, Tara, for joining us. I hope we can have you back as your research uh, proceeds with MEI and, and beyond. Uh, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in, and I want to remind everyone to go to the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, where you can subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast so you don't miss any of the great content that we are getting out pretty much every week. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Spotify, And then the, the video of this is also being produced as a podcast for YouTube. So with that, we will end it here. I'm Laura Friedman. And I'm Khaled Ilgindi. <laughs> Signing off for now. Take care and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.